I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So we set up the Israeli government in Palestine, moved some of the Arabs out, and they were not thrown out. They were compensated for the land that they had to give up. The Jews organized a, a government over there, and it's been a successful one ever since. The UN has expressed fears of a full-scale war as the deadly conflict between Israeli forces and Palestinians continues further. The Palestinian-Israeli conflict is perhaps not unique, but what distinguishes it from all others is the passions it arises in people all over the world. People tend to instinctively take a side. I want to share the deep condolences of the British people and stress that we absolutely support Israel's right to defend itself. Some stand with Israel, with democracy, with the garden in the desert and against terrorism. Hamas' stated purpose for existing is the destruction of the state of Israel and the murder of Jewish people. Others stand with the Palestinians against apartheid, settler colonialism, and for national liberation. The world community has done nothing uh, to stop an occupation that has become the longest in modern history. 56 years of occupation. Uh, Britain is saying that uh, Israel has the right to defend itself. Well, fine. What about the right of Palestinians to defend themselves? But for all of these passions, it has been described as one of the most publicised, but little understood, modern conflicts. You can't move five or six million people out of a country and fill it up with five or six million more and expect both sets of them to be pleased. Martin Bunton is the author of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, a very short introduction. He's an assistant professor at the University of Victoria in Canada. He joins me now to explain this conflict. Martin, many people in Ireland are highly informed and indeed highly motivated by the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, but some are not. And in relation to your book, The Palestinian-Israeli Conflict, I notice that there's a little bit of information that it's the most publicised but little understood modern conflicts. And I suppose that's what we're trying to get to the heart of because, as I say, many people are very well informed, but other people really aren't informed and they're confronted by all of this news and all of this story. And I know it's a huge question to ask, but could you very briefly give us the background of this conflict? Mm -hmm. It's a it's it's a big question and it's a tough question because where you as it were, where you start the clock, where you start the history matters a great deal in terms of the history that you then tell. Right. So we go into it knowing that. 
Um, and as a historian, uh, I go further back maybe uh, than many, but I think a useful starting point for your audience would be 1947 when the United Nations gets involved. The result is announced by Assembly President Aranya. The resolution of the Dutch Committee for Palestine was adopted by 33 votes, 13 against, 10 abstentions. Under the plan approved, Palestine's fails offers the United Nations its most serious challenge. And before talking about 1947 and their plan, I would want to just emphasize the point that the international community has a fair bit of responsibility, ongoing responsibility for this conflict. I would like to think that the international community has responsibility for many conflicts, but this is one that really does emerge from the newly formed United Nations after World War II, when in the wake of the war and the Holocaust, the international community puts together a plan for partition of what was Palestine in the interwar period, um, where you had a majority Arab population, which felt that like uh, the other majority populations in the decolonizing world deserved self-determination. In the wake of the Holocaust, the international community partitions Palestine into two states. As, uh, it does not come up with any mechanism to implement that plan, so it's left to the two sides to fight it out on the ground. That battle on the ground is won by the Jewish side. So a Jewish state emerges from that plan in 47, but the Palestinian Arab state does not emerge on the land that is left from that fighting. So in many ways, the conflict since then has been about uh, uh, fulfilling that plan. There's, a, there's an international consensus that the resolution to this conflict lies in two states. So we have a Jewish-Israeli state, right? It's a question of bringing about a Palestinian Arab state. And that's been, uh, that was reconfirmed in the 1967 war when the United Nations again comes up with a resolution, but no plan to implement it. And that's resolution 242, which says land for peace. At that point, Israel was an occupation of all of what was Palestine, but the world told Israel uh, it is inadmissible to acquire territory by force, give it back. But then it also told the Arab world it's time to recognize the state of Israel. So I think that's kind of, I think the, the, the first starting point is this international cons consensus behind, but also responsibility for bringing about a Palestinian state on that which remains of the land that the United Nations partitioned for the Palestinian Arab state, which we think of today as a Gaza Strip in the West Bank. Martin, what is the current legal and political status of the Gaza Strip in the West Bank? So since that 1967 war, when Israel uh, won this military victory, all of what was Palestine in the interwar period is now under Israeli control as occupied territory. I'm not an international uh, lawyer, but my understanding is that there are international uh, legal ways of occupying another country. Now, these ways are meant to be, the occupation is meant to be temporary, I think, underneath these um, uh, regulations. But both the Gaza Strip and the West Bank are considered by the international community to be after how many years now, though, right? 50, 60 years occupied territory. Uh, where, where things become perhaps a little bit more complicated is in the case of Gaza. In 2005, Israel withdrew all of its settlers and soldiers from the Gaza Strip, but it still controls what's often referred to as the entire Gaza envelope, that is 
It controls all access in and out of Gaza from the sea, from the borders, from the air. The one exception being a small border with Egypt, but Egypt controls that in coordination with Israel. I know you said you're not you're not a lawyer, um, but when we look on the map of the West Bank as it is now, Israel has hundreds of thousands of settlers in that area. You've described this as a struggle between two nations over land. When one looks at certain maps of the West Bank, there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of land left for a Palestinian state Mm -hmm. and certainly not connected together. They seem like islands, an archipelago. No, this is exactly the problem. That's one of the major complications in bringing about a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. That's the land that still remains from that 1947 partition plan that was set out in Fort is that uh, since 1967, against international law, against the Geneva Conventions, you've had increasing numbers of Israeli citizens move into the West Bank and settle there and establish their homes. And they're, some of them are very well established now after 50, 60 years of occupation. The, the question becomes, how does Israel negotiate Resolution 242, a return of land in return for a peace settlement with Palestinians, Resolution 242, how do you do that at the same time as you're as you're gobbling up more and more territory under these settlements? And part of the problem with the settlements isn't isn't just the land on which these settlements are built. You could perhaps think of that as a small amount of territory, but there's an entire settlement infrastructure that links those settlements to Israel. And that in that process, it divides the West Bank up into small little areas, leaving very little for space for Palestinians to actually live their lives and and leaving very little opportunity for the um, uh, for a vision of a, of, a, of a sovereign independent state, uh, which Palestinians would consider uh, viable and um, have a vested interest in the long term. I mean, I mean, that's it. I mean, aside from the situation in Gaza, these Israeli settlements, one way or the other, keep expanding. That comes with, I think all sides could agree, with violence. And it's very difficult to see how peace can really coexist with that. And there is, of course, no real peace process ongoing. Is the settlement issue fundamental to this? And it's a good question to ask right now, because with all, all of the attention, I think quite understandably, on the horrors of Gaza, right? Um, people aren't paying much as much attention to the West Bank right now, and we know that it was it's been under a, pretty much a, a military lockdown since the October seventh, with uh, increasing um, amounts of violence in the West Bank. But that's not to we should also put frame that into a historical context. I mean, this last year has been one of the most violent years in the West Bank. And that violence consists of different forms. One is settler violence against Palestinian villages, neighboring Palestinian villages. And these Israeli settlers have the Israeli defense forces behind them. And then another very big source of violence is sort of these search and arrest um, missions that the IDF launches against militant cells within the West Bank. And those um, midnight incursions into Palestinian areas in search of these militant cells always end up in violence because there will always be a gunfight. Now, there is a Palestinian authority in the West Bank. This is an authority that emerged from the 1993 Oslo Accords. Many viewed the emergence of a Palestinian authority in the West Bank as the beginning of a fulfillment of Resolution 242, the emergence and 1947 partition plan. Finally, the fulfillment of a Palestinian state in the West Bank Instead, however, for many different reasons, 
this Palestinian Authority pretty much acts now as a subcontractor to the Israeli occupation. And it spends more of its time clamping down on Palestinians themselves than it does resisting the occupation, which I think it provides some good context for Hamas and Gaza, which would like to see themselves as uh, they see themselves as a competitor, an opposition to the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. And they would like to see they see an opportunity here to grasp for themselves the leadership of the of the Palestinian resistance and its struggle against the occupation. To take this back to basics, I suppose, and I do wonder, is there something unique about this conflict which separates it from all others? Is there something, is it a sort of impossible to explain this or to think about this objectively, dispassionately? Because why I say that there are so many conflicts in the world. And, yeah. uh, and yet, for, for everyone, from the, le- for the left, for the right, from the west, to the east, this seems such a focal point. Is it a conflict apart? I think the, the, the basis of the conflict isn't particularly uh, complicated. Um, as I sort of suggested, this land in different ways has given birth to these two national identities. Um, somehow these two national identities, Jewish nationalism, Zionism and Palestinian nationalism, must find a way to coexist. And in that sense, it becomes a question of finding a line that can a border that can separate them into two states that will allow these two nations to achieve self-determination within them. Um, in 1993, there was this hope that that was a system where that, that, that there was a process by which that would emerge. On the other hand, it's not an equal process by any means, is it? I mean, Israel has a state. It has the most powerful army. Palestinians don't. They were in a particularly weakened position when they signed on to these 1993 Oslo Accords, which are exp- uh, particularly unfavorable towards the Palestinian situation. And then the other side to all of that is that what 1993 Oslo did is it took it out of the out of the orbit of the international community or the United Nations, for that matter. It excluded the European Union and put it very much into the hands of the United States. So they've been acting ostensibly as a as a mediator, as an arbiter in this regard. But by no means have they been neutral or dispassionate because it's been quite clear that they've sided very much with uh, the Israeli bargaining positions throughout this process. On, on the one hand, the, the role of the US behind Israel all the way. So, I mean, how can they possibly be peace brokers in any way? Or am I being unfair? Have the US at certain stages been more honest brokers, been more serious about Palestinian rights than perhaps they are today? They they haven't been a neutral uh, mediator in all of this. Uh, the, the, the extent to which they were able to acquire the kind of uh, role that they have probably had much to do with the extent to which they did emerge in the early 1990s as a fairly um, singular uh, uh, unipower in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1989 to 1991. So there wasn't a lot of contestation in that sense for the for the for the leverage for the position that they were able to adopt throughout the 1990s. Um, now, in terms of there not being a neutral arbiter, I think there are many people within the uh, within various Washington administrations who saw this and and realized uh, other positions that ought to be adopted. But I think if, to come back to your earlier question about what is unique about this situation is we are dealing with a territory uh, unique in the world, I suppose around which people have certain imaginations that they don't have of other parts of the world. This idea of it being a holy land, this idea of it being uh, 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 written about in biblical scriptures, 
that assign ownership to some people and not to others. And I think in that sense, uh, you have people adopting positions, particularly in, in what, let me think of North America and say Ottawa and Washington, that are predetermined by their, by, by these imaginations that they already have of this territory. And certainly that goes back in Britain too, right back to 1917 and the launching of the Balfour Declaration. Also unique, I think, in this sense, and worth commenting on now as well, is the international the the positions that the international community adopted after 1947 in relation to uh, World War II and the Holocaust, and that's a trauma that I think continues to resonate certainly in Israeli society, and and that trauma is very visible in Israeli reactions to the to the carnage launched by the Islamist militants in October 7th, but it's also um, uh, present in the international community. So interesting to note that 1947 UN partition plan, this was one of the only, this was a very rare UN uh, uh, vote on which both the Soviet Union and the United States agreed. So that, and, and I think that can in part, in large part be explained by the shared consensus of, of, the, of the world needing to respond to the Holocaust in such a way that granted some, some future for the hundreds of thousands of um, uh, uh, Jews who survived the Holocaust. So we've got those two singular uh, um, uh, factors at play here. The uh, histories of anti-Semitism in the West and the uh, biblical, so the associations of this particular territory with Western biblical imaginations. Israeli ambassadors, Israeli diplomats, Israeli spokespeople have pointed out that the Hamas attack, the Hamas massacres in the south of Israel have been the worst attacks on Jews since the Holocaust. So obviously, as you say, the Holocaust is always with everyone in this story. But Israel points out frequently that they feel that they are held to a higher standard in terms of human rights than many other countries around the world who also deal with insurgencies. And is there any, is there any basis for that? Uh, if we reduce it to only two adversaries, a Palestinian side and an Israeli side, they both feel the same way. They both feel that they are somehow sing- they, they they both feel that they are singularly isolated, either in terms of uh, undue criticism in the case of Israel or in the case of Palestinians, a situation by which there the, this occupation has been allowed to exist for far too long, or a situation where Western capitals side much more with um, uh, or or express much more sympathy with the loss of Israeli life than they do with Palestinian life. Palestinians and many people who support the Palestinians feel that somehow they don't benefit from the human rights that most of the people in the world do. You know, it seemed to me that at the starting point of any attempt to, to, under, to, 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 to both understand why the violence is happening today and to come to any understanding of those causes that would bring about some kind of resolution in the future is to accept that there are international laws around um, uh, 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 fighting wars, you know, that, that deem certain actions war crimes, that, that uh, force belligerents to distinguish between civilians and uh, soldiers. And if we don't apply that equally to everybody, you know, if we don't, if we don't somehow appreciate the, the, uh, the innocence of every civilian life, uh, 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 then uh, for, for international laws to have any meaning at all, they have to apply to everybody. 
And and no, that's not always the case, is it? And I think this is one of the issues that the United States will be having to struggle with moving forward is one of, if you think about a larger global context, which includes America's attempt to, to build support for its uh, for Ukrainians' resistance against Putin's aggression. I mean, there's that military battle, but there's also that political one as well about defending a rules-based order and defending international law. Very difficult to do that in an international arena, where you then turn around and suggest that Israel doesn't have to be held by the same by the same standards. If I can just bring you back to the various peace processes that there have been, uh, there was Camp David, there was Oslo. The Palestinians, despite clearly being on the losing side, have often been accused of not compromising enough in terms of these peace processes and, and not going far enough. Is, is that a criticism? Should the Palestinians have seen the way reality was earlier? I think the way Palestinians viewed this was um, in light of the 1947 UN partition plan, which granted them a certain amount of territory, uh, and which they saw as un- very unfair at the moment. When they accepted uh, the Oslo process and when they accepted Resolution 242, they accepted quite late in the day, they didn't accept the 47 UN partition plan. But 1988, the Palestinian leadership accepted Resolution 242 and they argued that yes, we will ex- um, we will accept, we will recognize Israel within its 1949 ceasefire borders. And in return for that, we will, we expect, uh, demand uh, a state on the West Bank and Gaza. It's about 22% of the land that remained from Palestine. All of which they thought was theirs based upon being 90% of the pop, 90, 95% of the population in World War I when Britain then colonizes the territory in the interwar period. So when they accept that in 1988, the idea of an pal- independent Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, they're saying that they, they basically made their compromise at that stage. They say, OK, we'll accept 22 percent of this land, but we want 100 percent of that 22 percent. Whereas Israel went into that negotiations largely with American support to say, OK, now let's bargain over the West Bank. With, a, with it in mind that um, the, if there were to be a Palestinian state that emerges, it would be uh, less than sovereign and um, it would not include the various areas that had been colonized by Israeli settlement infrastructure up to that point. And then throughout the Oslo process, that settlement infrastructure expands tremendously at the same time as they're negotiating for the future. So if you actually think about um, uh, Palestinian negotiating demands, uh, they've never had much leverage, they've never had much authority. So the extent to which perhaps um, uh, they ought to have compromised more on the basis of weakness, I don't know. But those, their minimum, their max, their minimum demands aligned with international law in the sense of Resolution 242 and the 1947 partition plan. Israel has the near complete support of the U.S., the EU and the Western world. I wonder what need does Israel have for a peace process, apart, of course, for its own security? What motivation could Israel possibly have at this stage to go into peace negotiations with what's left of the Palestinian political movement? There's two really interesting points you've asked in that question, right? And and I think a really interesting basis of that question is, let's assume that everybody's acting from rational positions. It's simply not kind of a rational position to expect Israel to engage into negotiations if it's not pressured to do so. 
right, if it's not facing any pressure to do so. If you think about Israeli society and politics, there's a very powerful, influential sector of that uh, population that wants to hang on to all of that land. So for Israel to engage into a negotiation over the creation of a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, that will cause trouble within Israeli politics. Why engage in that if they don't have to? And I think that it um, helps us explain the situation up until October 7th. And of course, when we look at the historical context in which October 7th occurs, by no means does that justify the carnage, the war crimes that committed by Islamist militants on October 7th. But we still have to understand the context that pre preceded it. And that context was, I think, one that you just laid out, a situation where Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank felt that there, there was this, um, uh, a status quo uh, in which, which gave them very, which gave Palestinians no future, but in which Israelis actually saw themselves saw some uh, some comfort in that they felt that this was a conflict that could be managed, that could be lived with, that could be that could be dealt with on a long term basis. So in that sense, I think that um, uh, uh, in terms of what Hamas was trying to do with this attack, and uh, it was still learning, I think, in terms of objectives and goals and strategies to the extent that they had them and to the extent that they were actually uh, ful fulfilled, was this um, uh, Hamas's attempt to, after, after 17 years of blockade, and an endless sort of pattern, with a pattern which Israeli leaders referred to as mowing the lawn, where Gaza would uh, rockets would be fired from Gaza in opposition to the siege and the blockade, and then Israel would respond with bombing campaigns, and then there'd be some ceasefires and negotiations, but then they would run their course, Gaza would disappear from the map, and a cycle would continue with more rockets. Right. So to some extent, Hamas just sort of blowing the whole, wrong metaphor, but uh, uh, turning over the tables, um, wanting a whole new paradigm in terms of moving forward with negotiations. So to get to the second question, the point of your question, why would Israel negotiate? Um, let's ask some questions about what Israel's objectives are here now. What is Israel's end game now with the with the ceaseless bombardment of Gaza and then this preparation, although it seems to be continually delayed, perhaps um, the delays are done and there will be a land a ground incursion soon. But what happens after? Right? Uh, if, if one of their objectives is to uh, eliminate Hamas and destroy Hamas, what do they end up with at the end of all of this? A destroyed, pulverized um, uh, Gaza with a very, very angry, suffering population that they are, that is now in their hands. They have zero. They have very, very. They have zero good options ahead. But it will be theirs, their problem to handle now. And in that sense, I think uh, to come sorry to a bit of a roundabout response here, but. Israel will be forced into some sort of, you asked about, you know, why would it negotiate? It's not going to want to hang on and, and take responsibility for administering and ruling Gaza. It will have to engage in some sort of negotiations with some actors in terms of moving forward. And Israel, with such a carte blanche in terms of its own security and to do what it deems necessary with the support of the US and UK, and and some elements of the EU. I just wonder, obviously, if they annexed all Palestinian territory and all Palestinians, they would be left with a massive number of people under their control who would not be deemed citizens 
of Israel. That would be a huge problem. The other scenario is if they removed the population of Palestine. The Egyptian government is reported to be concerned that the Israeli assault will create something of a Palestinian exodus towards Egypt. Uh, so it's interesting to see how Egypt has responded to this. Some some observers have felt that e Egypt has been quite callous in terms of keeping their border closed to uh, Palestinian refugees attempting to flee the bombardment of of, of Gaza. And of course, Israel has called for the um, the removal of, I think, some one million cit Gaza citizens from the north of Gaza. But um, uh, Egypt has been made it very clear that they will not be complicit in what many fear is, you know, another uh, expulsion of Palestinians from their territory. So if the trauma in Israeli society, of course, goes back to the Holocaust, the trauma in Palestinian society goes back to the war of 1947 to 49 and the expulsion of the Palestinian people from the land that becomes Israel in 1949. So that trauma is very evident as well. Uh, and a country like Egypt will not want to be complicit in it. And Palestinians themselves will not want to see that occur again. So the idea of, um, of, of Israel being able to uh, um, uh, push that sort of strategy forward, I don't think is will work as well. Also, Gaza is not a particular, let's remember, Gaza is a very small, tiny area. Uh, approximately 25, 30 kilometers long, maybe 15 kilometers wide. It's been it's been likened by British prime ministers, right, as an open air prison. Um, and in that sense, I don't see how you uh, how you change that situation by creating another massive refugee camp on on the Egyptian border. Egypt will not. Egypt will not, and Egypt is not in a very strong situation itself. It would probably fear uh, a, a certain destabilization of Egypt were millions of Palestinians to flee into the Sinai Peninsula as refugees. We have to remind ourselves that for the government of the UK, for Canada, for the United States, for, for all of these other Western nations, that Israel is a, is a vibrant democracy. It has the right to exist and the right to defend itself and that the actions of Hamas justify a very, very strong response. Well, a very strong response that distinguishes between civilians and between military targets, as according to international law. And which, again, if we base ourselves in international law, it comes back to that recognition of Israel as a, uh, as a state with a right to exist, as it were. Martin, can I ask you a final question? Uh, you've studied this. Do you have any hope for a solution in the Middle East? So the historian in me wants to say, uh, I, I don't have, I have no, you know, crystal ball looking for it. But um, that's a fudge. I no, I don't. I, I'm very, very pessimistic about the future. I don't see, I don't see how. Um, uh, of course, very sad for um, both the the, fa the Israeli families who suffered the um, the destruction of their villages in Israel, and especially sad for all these families that are continuing to lose children in Gaza. Uh, so there's just going to be the trauma of surviving all of this in the long term. In terms of a political process. I don't see any kind of hope actually of moving forward. Um, I, I would still believe that as, as um, unlikely as a two-state solution appears today, both because of the anger on the ground, but also because of what you've already talked about in terms of the settlement infrastructure, which has become so well entrenched in the, in the West Bank that it seems difficult to know how you do carve out a Palestinian state. But I still see that as um, um, the only viable uh, a solution moving forward. Um, 
in in the uh, absence of that, you have some this kind of one state scenario where Israel controls all of the land here, including Israel itself and West Bank, in which there's a Palestinian population that's treated as second class citizens. We haven't talked about them. And then the 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 trauma, the uh, situation, the precarious situation of many uh, Palestinian villages in the West Bank and Gaza. And that's a situation which most almost every main human rights organization has defined over the last couple of years as an apartheid type situation where you have a minority pop ethnic population ruling over a majority population. That's the scenario we have today. That's the most likely scenario moving forward. How sustainable that is, I'm not clear. I would argue that um, uh, the emergence of a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza is as much or more in Israel's interest than it uh, as it, as it is in Palestinians' interest. Might might this situation might uh, that we're facing right now, and who knows? We haven't talked about the possibilities of escalation, whether it be within the West Bank or Israel or um, the southern Lebanon or elsewhere in the region. Might that finally force the international community? To, if if nothing else, to to uh, to implement and impose and stand by international resolutions, um, we know kind of what a two state solution would look like for this. Would would the situation on the ground today actually you know force the international community to recognize that the status quo is not sustainable, that it's not stable, that it will continue to kind of um, provoke more violence and actually become more engaged? And might this crisis actually force more Israelis after? after some time to realize that the situation is is not stable and uh nor is there nor is there um uh, as much security to be had behind these um uh walls and uh military fortifications and technology as has been thought over the last decade or so martin is there anything i should have asked you that i didn't one area to think about is the potential for escalation but I suppose if I were to conclude on one point here about the escalation in Gaza, it was interesting that um, Biden, yes, you talked about green lights and carte blanche, but I think Biden has somewhat started to call for or um, uh, develop a language around calling for some restraint. And when he did that, he reflected on America's own experience with engaging um, in responding to 9-11 and it, the terrorist attacks on Israeli, on, on American soil. And the various, he referred to them cryptically as mistakes that were made. But I think the larger point to raise here is that there is no military solution here. There has to be a political resolution to this conflict, A. And B, the idea that there, that military force can be directed towards some political end is misplaced. That if anything, we could see scenarios develop over the weeks to come that we're not even necessarily aware of because of the extent to which military force, the so-called unintended consequences of military force could take us into directions that we don't even know. Perhaps by intention, intention but many actors may respond even just by accident, inadvertently, and it could go in different directions. Martin Button, Professor Martin Button, thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Karen Dunbar, with assistant producer Olivia Peden. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from the BBC, Sky News, British Pathé and The Guardian.
When you get an Irish Independent Digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.